Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Hindsight, a nostalgia podcast. My name is Ian, and I'm joined, as always, by Wes. Wes, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It is a beautifully chilly day today, a little rain, my favorite type of weather. I do like this weather. Now, we, we record this show in my workshop. It is cold in here. There is one space heater. The Death Star. The Death Star. It's uh, a parabolic heater. I think I'm using that, that term correctly. I think so. It's just a laser beam of heat. If you're in the beam, you're hot. If you're out of the beam, you're not. And you are in the beam, and I am not, so I had to double up on my uh I'm slightly in the beam. Today. I'm still dressed like an Eskimo. I'm just totally packed up here. Yeah, you seem to have, have tricked nature somehow by <laughs> the manner in which you dress. You, you get away with uh, the, the sweatpants and the, this fleece that you found. Huh? Oh, dude, this I'm fleece jealous. is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. It's my favorite thing to wear. I will wear it until it stinks. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that might be now, by the way. <laughs> could, I didn't want to say well much. But <laughs> well, I, I, I did eat a lot of beans last night. Oh, so that come might, on. I know that might, come on. That might increase the, uh, the rate. So I've got got something on my mind I want to talk to you about before we get into the show. Yeah. I don't know if you suffer from this too. One of the 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 biggest disappointments in life is how dumb adults are. Cool. And I thought as a kid that adults were uh were were smarter. They they had their act together. They were the leaders. Yeah. But as an adult, I am just constantly in a state of awe of the stupidity of my, my fellow adults out there. Now, it doesn't matter if I'm, I'm talking about a, a cabinet guy or I'm at the pharmacist or at the bank or dealing with our, our mortgage company. It's every day I am met with a level of incompetence um, that greater than the day before. <laughs> <laughs> I respect that. And it's, I feel like it's it's spiraling out of control so bad. I don't know what's in store for me today. Now it's it's early in the day right now. It's about about nine or ten in the morning, so I have a full day ahead. And after all the shenanigans I had to deal with yesterday, I can't even imagine what's going to happen today. Oh, it's it's a veritable treasure trove of surprises and uh, excellence and stupidity. I'm sure. Well, yay. Yeah, I'm number awesome. one at being dumb. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you see this as well? I, oh my God, it is profound. I, uh, as a child, I too had that same delusion that somehow when you became an adult, you moved into this arena of nobility and kindness, thoughtfulness, sincerity, only to be met with the harsh reality of, yeah, yeah very few people are like that. And those of us who try to be like that, we stand out like sore thumbs. Now, I'm not saying that I'm necessarily good at all of those things, but I at least keep them in the back of my mind. And so it amazes me when I see people who who are so casual in their lack of concern for other people. You know what I mean? Just Oh, sure. And yeah. something that really troubles me is we all went to school. And so when I come across somebody that works at a financial institution that can't do basic division... Yeah. Addition, subtraction, you know, the, the basics, yeah. the, the third grade math. I just I wonder what went wrong in this person's life. I you know, I think a lot of it, though, is is I don't think we're ever we weren't educated to really be 
we're just educated enough to be functional, not to be good at anything. Oh, I don't know if I'm coming across many functional adults. Yeah, well, maybe. We're, the, the standard for functional is getting lower and lower every day. Because <laughs> my grandparents were a whole lot more functional than I am, than my kids will be, than my grand. I mean, we're just, we're seeing this this gradual dumbing down of everybody. And so I think that we're kind of looking at the intergenerational move going, well, they're dumber than we are, just like our parents were looking at us going, whoa, they're dumber than, you know, dumber than me. So I think it's just this gradual realization. That's a, that's not a good sign for society. No. If, if our great grandparents and grandparents had their act together mm-hmm. and were contributing to, to society sooner than our parents were, and then in turn us, you know, my parents at my age were much farther along in life and careers and, mm-hmm. And just seem to have their act together. Yeah. Well, you know, my... What's going to happen to my kids and their kids? Well... We're only a few generations away from not finding a career until you're 55 or 60. Well, that's exactly it. You know, well, I read an article a while back. I'm not going to be able to reference it, but it had talked about how 30 was the new 18 and how there were some scientific studies that had shown or at least demonstrated that an 18-year-old today was more on par with a 14-year-old from 20 years ago. You know, that's an interesting observation. How true it is, how consistent it is, I don't know. But just the fact that, that, that there was a study out that made this observation is a little concerning, and it kind of reflects in our day-to-day interaction with people everywhere. Just everything is getting sillier, slower, simpler, less engaged, more insular. And I think part of that is that that natural uh, inclination to, you know, social media and everything has made us so narcissistic that we only think about ourselves and we don't know how to interact with anyone else. And we don't care what anyone else's experience with us is because we live our lives on our social media. You know, that's where it's at. And that's all marketing and phoniness anyways. Sure. You know, so. I'd like to think that there, at some point in, in probably relatively recent history, like we reached the the happy medium, the the right place for, you know, growing up and maturing at the right age and and moving on and having a family. It obviously, wasn't the the eighteen hundreds where by fifteen, you know, you you had a kid and or you two. built three log cabins and yeah, and you yeah. died. Well, you died by the time you were fifty. Right, right. Now maybe in the nineteen forties. I mean, if mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the the whole getting drafted and going off to war thing. I would it, say maybe like the fifties, but yeah, fifties. Yeah. Uh, People yeah. smear it, but I think that's because it was the that's the pinnacle of maybe where we were at as individuals. Is that where this the whole idea of uh, moving out at eighteen started and and kind of going out on your own, making your own way at eighteen? I think you know what honestly, I don't. I, I'm not sure. I, I I'm not a sociologist per se, but I think that it's probably just inherent in the character of the American because if you think about it. The people who settled the country were oftentimes the second sons, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, who didn't have much of a future in their home countries, and so they moved here. What kind of guts does it take for you to hop on a boat and sail for months at a time, never knowing if you were going to make it or not, and then landing with you know, a few drachma or a, or a handful of lira in your pockets, and then making your way all the way across the country and settling in some completely remote place you know 
like Iowa and building a life and having a, having a family and raising, I mean, I think that part of that is just built into the American mindset is that, that strength, that hardiness. And so that, I think that maybe that out at 18 is probably an extension or some kind of merger of that and, and just reality. I don't know. What if all of human history, the settling new lands and discovering new places all comes from us wanting to escape dumb adults. <laughs> could, could that be it? <laughs> I, I, you know, maybe dumb adults. I would say it's probably more uh, bad adults. Okay. Right. Because the dumb ones follow bad, right? Uh, no, I'm not saying saying bad people. I'm but people that are bad at being adults. Mm. Is, is that what you're saying? Or are no. you saying bad people? No. I, I, if you imagine, think about think about the 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 voracious. Mongol horde, right, or uh, Timberlane's uh, marauding uh, in the Middle East. People want to get the heck away from that, and so that that kind of abusive, violent barbarism drove people out, pushed people out. And then when you had this, the nation states, say of medieval Europe, and they were able to clamp down on dissent and clamp down on on uh, religious expression and whatnot, that drove people out because that's unjust. And so people left. And so when I say bad, I mean bad players. Okay. You know? Well, you're talking about bad people. I'm just talking about stupid people. Well, stupid people is a lot more common, and we deal with that a lot more. And and sorry, but you ain't escaping that. No, everywhere I look, I, I deal with uh, stupid people. Every phone call I make to the county, every time I have to get a, a business license renewed, it's gotten to the point that when I pick up the phone or know I have to have an interaction with somebody, I get this overwhelming sense of anxiety just knowing I'm going into I'm going into battle with stupidity. <laughs> so let me ask you, do yes. you do you have like if you need to call someone, right? Okay, Ian, call so and so. You put it off. You see the number, you put it off. You put it off. You are you that kind of person? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people I'm like that. I can be like that until I finally am like, okay, it's 450 I need to call before they close and then I gripe because I'm the 12th caller because we all do that I think a lot of us do because we just want to deal with dumb people what's really tragic is you know I, I worked in sales for years mm-hmm. that depended on phone calls and I would lie about making my phone calls because I didn't like to call people I, st- I still don't like to call people now that's because you don't want to call somebody unexpectedly and try to sell them a car or try to sell them a, a bank loan. Yeah. Because no one likes that guy either. No. I used to have to do it. Okay, here, here's one. When I was a young man, we had to do callbacks for apartment rentals. So you'd have this list of callbacks. If you were like, I, I was at a really bustling community. And so sometimes I would have to call back 40 and 50 people. And initially... I hated doing it, and then it just got to be wrote. It it got to be so easy. So now I don't dread it per se, but I, I but in my off time, in my normal human time, I don't like calling people. I hate the phone. I avoid it. I run from it, and yet I have it glued to my hip all the time. So there's an irony there. It is odd that we've gotten to that place, and I don't think we're alone in that. No, I think text messaging has, has taken over. There's there's no emotion behind it. There's no humor. It's just oh, but you basic would think messaging. there was. Yeah, you, you ever have. You ever try to have 
a conversation on a text. You could pick up the phone and resolve it in five minutes, but you take two hours to have a stretched out conversation. And then the other person takes something that you've said wrong. There's always emotion, but it's really a lesson in our own our own projection. It's kind of interesting. I'm always worried about people taking what I say and, and text and email the wrong way. Uh-huh. I have a kind of a, a deadpan, dry sense of humor, and it, it it's really hard to translate that. That's code for not funny. Hmm. <laughs> You're actually quite funny. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like the English. Oh, we have dry humor. Oh, yeah, that's no humor at all. I know. No. Uh, that that's a subject for another day. We we could do we could do multiple episodes on on British humor. attempts at humor, and we should. We should. Yes, indeed, indeed. But today, what are we talking about? Oh my gosh, we're talking about a a film from 1986, Ruthless People. Uh, this film uh, is one of my favorites from years gone by. Obviously, it was 1986 when it was out. It stars Bette Midler and Danny DeVito as a uh, incredibly rich couple bet his wife gets kidnapped by judge Reinhold and Helen Slater only to find out that they hold her for ransom, but Danny DeVito was planning to kill her anyways. So the uh, kidnappers are responsible for killing her, but there are a couple of sweet people who have no intention of doing that. They just want to shake him down for half a million dollars. That's it because he screwed them out of something earlier Alas, that's where all the fun starts. So this is my first time seeing this movie. Yeah. I'd never even heard of it. Before. Really? Yeah, yeah. You were telling me about it. And now this movie is near and dear to you. It's it's one of the earliest ones we're doing. So it's it's closest to your heart and, and right on the. It's it's one of these. You know what it is? I was not allowed to see it in 1986. So when I watched it, maybe 10 years later, I I thought, what a great movie. I had no inclination to watch it I had no desire to watch it and then I sat down and it was one of those where I was pleasantly surprised because I didn't expect much and it was just off-color humor everybody is screwing everybody out of something and it's just kind of dastardly in its whole setup and so I, I I guess I appreciate that Danny DeVito it was surprising to me to see Danny DeVito look young <laughs> did he did he really look young? For Danny DeVito. I suppose yes. so, because I think Danny DeVito is one of those who's always going to look like he's 60. But so yes, he, he looked younger. You know, he's probably best known to my generation, I think, for, for Batman. Oh, yeah. Uh, as the Penguin and, and also in uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, yes. He, he's found a role. That show's been on forever. Yes, it has. But it was it was interesting to see him in this. And every time I see this guy... It's so tragic, and he must know it's true. But anytime you see him, it's like, how tall is he? <laughs> oh, I feel like this is something that needs to be looked up. But I refused to do that last night. I was like, that even though I don't know him, it's like that's so insulting. It's like the first thing I see is like, he can't see over the dashboard in his little red sports car. Right? Yeah. <laughs> How does this guy have a driver's license? He's a little dude. Yeah. He's he is a little guy, and he's filled with rage in this movie. He is so mad all the time. Now he has he has a a couple of of excellent lines and um, what what comes to mind first or stood out most to me in this was when he's talking to the detectives and he was upset because they're talking about condiments in their sandwich <laughs> and he uh, you know I'm kind of paraphrasing but he was just like 
I'm fighting for my life here, and you're arguing over meat condiments. Yeah, <laughs> over the subtleties of yes. meat condiments. <laughs> yeah, my Barbara. It was excellent. It was excellent. He he, you know, fakes tears and has to, you know, kind of feign this this sense of loss. But he starts putting makeup in his eyes to make his eyes red and irritated. Followed by the followed by the eye drops, then to to simulate the tears. He was my favorite in this movie. Isn't he great? He is great. He he really is. And you know, there there's something about just this angry little man conniving that whether he intends. To use his size as I don't know a, 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 prop. a comedic prop, yeah. yeah, yeah, it works. It it's hilarious. He is so funny, and I don't think about him very frequently. No, he, um, you know, he, he actually, I think his first role that I remember was in Taxi, and he played kind of this character. I imagine this is how Danny DeVito is all the time. It must be. He must just be a ridiculously funny person. Um, I would be really heartbroken to find out that he's actually a serious serious guy that would that would really kind of rock my world you know but sure. uh i think he is just great at playing awful and then you have judge reinholt and helen slater who are just great at being sweet they i think the casting in this was just so on point for the characters because while you liked danny devito for the rotten man that he was you liked judge Reinhold and Helen Slater's characters, what were they, Ken and Sandy, for being just the nicest people that you could you could imagine. Who happened to kidnap? It, it should not be overlooked. They did commit a pretty serious crime. Huge crime, yeah. They did it to seek revenge because of the a stolen uh, miniskirt idea. Yeah, right? yeah. The spandex miniskirt. Oh, yes. The, well, the infamous spandex miniskirt. So just real quick... <laughs> When he gets a, when Danny DeVito ends up getting arrested, and he's like, "You're under arrest." He's like, "What for combining cotton and silk?" <laughs> Which I find that incredibly offensive. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was a, a brilliant moment. But we got to talk about Bette Midler, I think, before we move on oh, to yeah. the rest of the cast. Yeah, uh, we should do these in order. Okay. I'm. I've never been a Bette Midler fan. I can't really think of anything she's been in outside of Hocus Pocus that, that really stood out to me. But I think what it comes down to is I'm just not very familiar with her catalog of work. Oh, yeah. She, you know, it's interesting is Bette Midler had a, a rebirth of her career with Down and Out in Beverly Hills, which was just prior to Ruthless People, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, both of these were were made by Disney uh, this was their first couple of forays into the R-rated scene, and it created quite a stir uh, socially. Disney had always been, you know, fairy tales and G-rated, and now they were getting into the the R-rated adult comedies and whatnot. And Bette Midler was one of their first stars to blossom because of this change. She just has an incredible comedic timing. She's slightly over the top in her line delivery in this, but it just makes it it's fun and. You'll see that Bette Midler's career, after starting with Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Ruthless People, it moved on to films like The Infamous Beaches, and uh, there was a host of other films, Big Business with Lily Tomlin was another one, that really cemented her as kind of a, a, a cult actress. You either love Bette Midler as an actress or you don't. She's just campy and a little cheesy and a little over the top, and I think she fits in beautifully in this ensemble cast. So I think it should be said, you talked about 
this being a Disney movie. Mm-hmm. It's a Disney movie, but it's under the We're, subsidiary of Touchstone. It is, yes, yes. And and Touchstone kind of became this, you know, up until probably the the early '90s, the, this catch-all for whether it be Nightmare Before Christmas or a movie uh, like this, where they just couldn't have it under their brand. They they were worried about how it would exactly. reflect on you know the Magic Kingdom and, yes, and all that. Absolutely. Bette Midler in this was obnoxious almost to a fault in half the movie she was the beginning half of the movie terrible it's you wanted to see them kill her (laughs) i did i was like come on judge reinhold why don't you step up you keep threatening to kill this lady let's do it no one wants her she contributes nothing to society get rid of her she's the worst and then after then there's a turning point and they all kind of befriend one another because she loses weight (laughs) because she loses 20 pounds while she's working out so our conversations, you know, just weave in and out and yeah, not a lot of structure here. And that's fine. Because I got to talk to you about the 80s. <laughs> oh, this movie is the epitome of everything tacky about the 80s. As someone who doesn't really remember the 80s, mm-hmm. and you were very cognizant in the 80s. I was. Or how accurate is this? Is this the feel? I understand the exaggerated like house that that they lived in. Yes, it was, I I want to say that it was probably done to up the ostentatious kind of low rent quality of these wealthy people. You know, they were like new money types, and so of course they had all the latest trendy stuff, regardless of whether it was tasteful or not. And so you have these these mono, you know, these these uh, primary colored ridiculous chairs you have this artwork the neon signs everywhere it's just garish the shapes shapes on shapes layers of shapes seems mm-hmm. to be the the whole design philosophy yeah um all the the art what it reminded me of a lot was um like a julia louis dreyfus from a christmas vacation the, the neighborhood the neighbors yep and they had that very it's a very cold aesthetic even though the mm-hmm. colors are warm it's uninviting it's hard it's mm-hmm. rigid yeah, and absolutely. So my family didn't have any of that crazy stuff, but just seeing some of this design, it's like, I don't know how I feel about it because part of me really likes it, and then part of me is like, this is just that's ridiculous. That's entryway tacky. It, it was tacky. Yeah. So it was it was considered tacky then as well. I you know I I would I would say yes. My parents didn't have anything like that, and if we're going to talk about it, I think that was idealized, exaggerated again, for, for comedic effect, because it's one thing to have some pieces that are from that particular trend. It's another thing to have your whole house done up and it just, it's just a a, kind of an, a tacky thing, right? So it's like, if you go into a Southwest home and you have nothing but howling coyotes and pastels everywhere, it's one thing to have a little bit of that. It's quite another to have your entire house look like that. It's just a little obnoxious. And it's that obnoxiousness is I want to say the underlying theme, right? So Bette Midler's obnoxious in this. Uh, Danny DeVito is obnoxious. Their home is obnoxious. Their behaviors are... Ob- so the, you you like them on one level, but at the same time, you they keep... The setting reinforces this obnoxiousness. And then you pivot over to the little home where Bette Midler's been kidnapped to, and it's just a little, you know, uh, shaker cottage. It's quaint and it's cozy and it's charming rather right and it's kind of undated it just could fit in any era except for the dial-up phone but yeah 
So once we go back and what we there is that dichotomy between the the fanciness and the obnoxious uh, manner that Danny DeVito and Bette Midler live in mm-hmm. uh, to to Sandy and is it Ken Ken yeah Ken's house, but what we don't find out until later is that Sandy is a closet obnoxious. Her designs for her clothes the whole time she is the same as Bette Midler. Yeah, we just don't know it yet. Yeah. And then when they start doing their their makeovers and the big fluffy hair and again shapes layered on shapes for the outfits, yeah, because you know Bette Midler for the first time like feels super confident in her body because she lost twenty pounds yeah. during an aerobic workout session. <laughs> Which how long was she in that basement? I don't know. You know, you lose a sense of time. So I mean, what a few weeks maybe? Maybe this transpires over a couple of weeks. I I don't know. So she's being held captive because Judge Reinhold is uh, demanding a ransom. Half a million dollars. Half a million dollars. And Danny DeVito, of course, isn't going to pay it because he just wants his wife to die. And one of the stipulations for the the whole ransom was don't tell the cops, don't tell the media, don't tell anybody. So the first thing Danny DeVito is, of course, is tell everyone. Yep. Now, so he doesn't pay up, he doesn't pay up, and slowly but surely the ransom is getting you know whittled down to nothing. They just want to get something out of this now. But the first time he reduces... The, the ransom, there's a really neat little touch. He's on a payphone and he's calling, and behind him is a sign lighting up saying, Jesus saves. Jesus saves, yeah. It, it's quite obviously, you know, oftentimes the movies just is something in the background that maybe they didn't really pay attention to, but this is so obviously there uh, for a reason. And I thought it was a, a clever little touch, and I, I really appreciate little things like that in, yeah. in movies. It added a little extra to the scene. Yeah. I, and you know what's funny? I knew you would. <laughs> I did. I knew you would. I saw that too. And I, cause I've noticed it in the past. And I thought, ah, I, I like that. He's, he's on that payphone. boy. If nothing else dates this other than the fashion, it's the use of payphones. Oh, speaking of payphones, Wes, I think my favorite comedic moment in this, and it was predictable, but they didn't use it when I thought they would was when the ransom was being handed off at the end. And Danny DeVito is in this bank of payphones that, like, it's a semicircle. Yes. And there's payphones all around. And I was like, I if I were in his situation and a phone rang, I don't know if I would know which one to go to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and lo and behold, so the first time the phone rings, he just walks up to it and talks. I was like, oh, well, maybe, you know, I, I guess you would because, you know, I, I'm doing all this math in my head of, yeah. of how you would figure it out. And then not three or four minutes later, the phone rings and he walks up to the wrong one. Yes. <laughs> How do you know? Yeah. Right. Which is interesting because they would all have different numbers. So the second time he was being called from the, the guy up top, right? Yes. So they all have different numbers to different payphones down one below. Of them. Yeah. So I wonder if there were any other detectives or anyone else that needed to reach out to him at a number for you know a different pay payphone. Yeah, because there were what was it? There was probably like a dozen phones. Oh, it was great. Yeah, yeah it was way too many. Now, what I wanted to also add it because at this point, you know, two of the main characters we haven't touched on kind of pop in for comedic relief, and this would be Bill Pullman in his first major role. Now, Bill Pullman was famous for the president in Independence Day um, and in uh, a host of other films. I didn't look him up. That makes sense. When he first appears and he's got the, the bleach blonde hair with yeah. like the dark roots showing. Yeah. It's like, man, this guy looks, looks familiar. so familiar. Yeah. And then he starts st- talking with this speech impediment. Yeah. And it just threw me off completely. I was now, like, I don't, maybe I've never seen him before. Yeah. Now let's give a little background real quick. So there are two additional characters we haven't talked about. Carol, 
played by Anita, the late Anita Morris, and Bill Pullman's character, and I can't even think off the top of my head what his name is, but they are, Carol is Danny DeVito's mistress, and we, we learn later has been so for a very long time. The thing that makes her even more rotten is that she's trying to set Danny DeVito up. He has shared his intent to kill his wife with his mistress, and she sees a big payday. Well, mistress has her own mister in Bill Pullman, who is dumber than a box of rocks, Danny DeVito tells her how he's going to kill his wife. And so Carol turns to Bill Pullman and says, I need you to be here by the Hollywood sign at this time and roll camera and record what you see. Well, what happens is Bill Pullman, he's there at the designated time and a gentleman pulls up in a car with what turns out to be a hooker. And that gentleman who gets recorded isn't Danny DeVito killing Bette Midler. It is what it turns out to be the police commissioner cheating on his wife with a hooker. And so this is a new twist to the whole story that gets mixed into this. And it makes for, it, this is just a classic farce where you've got all these different players running on different assumptions, uh, playing against each other. And it just, I think it, I, I love, and I love Anita Morris. Um, she passed away in 1994 oh. from ovarian cancer. So she was only 50 when she died. So she was probably, what, about 44, 45 in this film. So she only had a, uh, now nah, she's probably younger than that. But yeah, she. Uh, That's tragic. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, very young. Now, maybe it's just I, I'm a simple-minded person. That's probably it. <laughs> it probably is. Usually that's the, <laughs> the answer for most of my problems in life. But that this little subplot kind of complicated things a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was hard for me to really follow. I didn't understand. So they were they record. It's obviously like you said they they were there to record the murder of the wife. But what they got was the police commissioner with a prostitute. They send that video to Danny DeVito though, mm-hmm. as a shakedown. But it wasn't him. So so I'm lost. Well, what had happened was Bill Pullman doesn't know what Danny DeVito looks like. So he records this guy. The prostitute is screaming bloody murder. Right. But it's not because she's being killed. Then Anita Morris's character, Carol, never watches the video because it was too gruesome, according to Bill Pullman. So so she never watches it. So she just blindly sends it to Danny DeVito, who looks at it and thinks it's porn. Right. And then he goes, well, who else would send me something so lewd but my mistress? So he calls her up. She now thinks he's on to them that she recorded a murder when in point of fact, she just recorded, you know, a couple of people getting it on. I think this probably would have been ironed out in my mind had I watched it a second time. Maybe. Maybe. Probably. Uh, It it makes a lot more sense now. I get it. I get it. Mm -hmm. And I was right. The answer was I'm just a simple minded. (laughs) I wasn't going to say it. It's usually best if you come to that conclusion on your own. Um, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed, especially when they went to Bill Pullman's trailer, all the loud <laughs> traffic going by. And there's this weird device on this little table. Like it's an, it's an AeroStream. Yeah. Trailer. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it AeroStream or AeroStream? Uh, I think it's Aero. Aero. Yeah. Whatever. It's the big silver one. Uh, this one is not that big though. <laughs> and there's this uh, like apparatus on, on this, uh, on the table inside and, you know, he's like, oh, there's floaters. <laughs> or he's like, Bill's floating. No, it's Crockett and Tubbs. <laughs> Crockett and Tubbs is the name of the fish? Yes, after Miami Vice. Because oh. in, in, in the film, 
you'll notice Bill Pullman is dressed. That's why he's got the bleached hair. It's all kind of a, an homage to uh, Don Johnson from uh, Miami Vice fame. Well, see, and that makes more sense, and that's something you'd pick up on. Well, and, it was and lost yeah, because a lot of it is is eighties reference, and so you have to kind of pick up on those things. Though the film is rife with some great one liners too. That I think you had picked up on one of them. Uh, you had sent me a text after you watched it. Oh, uh, um, Bette Midler is like <laughs> uh, getting very upset because she found out that the ransom wasn't getting paid and they keep reducing it. <laughs> yeah. And, and what was the line? Was that I've been kidnapped by Kmart? Yes. <laughs> Just the way she delivers it. Oh yeah. Oh gosh. No, it was great. I will say again, I wasn't a, a Bette Midler fan going into this, but the second half of this movie really made me like her. Yeah. She's a likable actress. She really is. And again, just this idea of her being locked in a basement and having nothing to do. But exercise. But exercise. And they have a TV and it's just aerobics yeah. going okay. nonstop. Here's the thing that's funny. And I thought of you when I was watching this. I thought if you were locked in a basement with a television, the last thing you would do is exercise. They would probably have to roll you out on a stretcher. <laughs> Listen. Uh, it's torture to, to be locked up in a basement anyways. And so I'm not going to further torture myself than by exercising. Exactly. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> no. I got yeah, and I to be honest with you, I couldn't imagine myself wanting to do exercise either. I'd just be sitting there watching soap operas eating Doritos. I don't know. I I do enjoy Sandy's like, "Oh, you looks like you lost weight." And Bette Midler's like, "What?" It's like, "Yeah, it looks like you've lost weight. It looks like you've lost like 20 pounds." That changed everything. It changed everything. And then she gets the scale, and sure enough, she lost 20 pounds. So how good is Sandy's eye at measuring weight? Well, she's a fashion designer. Oh, mm-hmm. good call. Good See? call. So she gets this. Because I wasn't buying it, but now that you point that out, that well, makes a little bit well, more and sense. I, would, I, I think that women are probably more in tune with something like that. Guys generally don't care. You know, We're like, oh, we gained five pounds. Who cares? Right. But women, that's it's it's a different standard. So I think that a woman because it, it wouldn't have been believable for, say, Ken to walk down the stairs and say, oh, yeah, it looks like you've lost some weight. He wouldn't even notice. But a woman would notice those things on another woman, I think. So my only, again, reference to Bette Midler was Hocus Pocus before this. Yeah. And that was at the end of her her career. Right. And she's not the end of her career, but the end of, you know, she had had this peak in mm-hmm. the early 90s late 80s and then she was starting to wander down and hocus pocus was kind of on that wander down well she wasn't a you know a thin woman in that no just a a normal person in that but so when this started and she's like well chunky i didn't even know that that was fake yeah because i'm so unfamiliar with bet midler and they gave her baggy clothes and that hair that yeah she just looked like a mess and she was mean and what was fun about it was, all again, she got so many good one-liners in where she's teasing Judge Reinhold about um, being the most popular boy at the San Quentin Country Club. Yeah. You know, just <laughs> she's just vicious the whole time. And then, right. of course, Helen Slater, Sandy, plays such a mousy, frady cat of a human being. And it's just perfect. You know, you they did something horrible. They kidnapped a woman. She has every right to be mean. But then Sandy is so stinking sweet. How can you have this? You know what I mean? There's this dichotomy, which I found interesting because you find this all over the place, right? So you have, there's this dog 
right? The little dog Muffy, who is uh, Danny DeVito and Bette Midler's pet. And Danny hates this dog. And so he gets Adolf, this <laughs> big Doberman. And ultimately, even that dog betrays him. Everybody is betraying everybody in this, even the pets. A2 Adolf. A2 Adolf. <laughs> yeah. They all are doing it. That's my silk tux. <laughs> uh, I love it. Every, everything is just falling apart for this man. Oh, it's great. Yeah, in the very beginning, he comes home because he's going to kidnap his wife and kill her. Yep. So he has chloroform. this bottle of, yeah, of chloroform. That's yep. what it was. And he, he's running everywhere and, and throws it over the hill. And then lo and behold, they find it later. And that's when they, they peg him for, for murder. For her murder. Yep. yep. And now he's got to get her back after all this discounting. And, of course, Bette Midler is freed by Sandy because they had a, a moment. And so now Ken comes back, panics Sandy. Then we find out there's another subplot running in the story. And this is where there's a serial killer who's running around. Killer. The bedroom killer. <laughs> and so while what I, I love this, this scene where Ken opens the door to a cop who says, have you, if you have any information, this guy's been seen in the area. He's a serial killer. Of course, in the background, Sandy is panicked because she thinks the cops are coming to arrest him for kidnapping. (laughs) And it's just this, it's just slapstick comedy uh, at its, at at its best. And uh, then they shut the door. And of course the bedroom killer does end up coming on in, but it's only when Bette Midler returns having grabbed a newspaper and on the front page of the newspaper, is Danny DeVito and his mistress, Carol. And it turns out they've had this affair for over a decade. And so Bette is bent on revenge herself. And so she returns. And at that very moment, the bedroom killer returns. And he falls down the stairs. He dies conveniently. Yes. <laughs> yes, which is an important plot point because at the because it leads to the ending, the satisfactory ending, I thought. I don't know. Well, you talked about Sandy running around worrying about being caught because the cop is at the door. Right. You know, that was just her turn to do that because Judge Reinhold did that earlier. Yes. When he was pretending to have a stomach flu and he's trying to climb out the window because <laughs> the cops were there to ask him questions. Because they had matched his tires. <laughs> matched his tires. Yes. yes. <laughs> Which I'm like, gosh, that's pretty good. How do you match tires? I, You know, like I get that they do, but he must have had brand new tires. Well, yeah, I, I know that's a, a realistic thing, but usually it's in it is. like that's just one piece of evidence. Right. Yeah. I mean. There's lots of cars that have the same tires out there. Yeah. They weren't doing like depth checks of his tread and or a- anything like that. Yeah. To see him first freak out and climb out this window that's like surprisingly holding his weight. Yes. And it's what? 30 feet up? Where was he going to go? He was going to go down and break his ankle <laughs> or his leg or his back. And then so he's still hanging out the windows or the window when the, the cop knocks on the door and he's like, oh, it'll be just a minute. And cop's like, no, don't worry about it. You know, we're, we're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> and then they walk out the building. They walk underneath him as he's hanging out the window. I love that scene. It, it, it amazes me in movies. And it, it's a great kind of theatrical, you know, comedic it's tool. It's for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where they just don't look up. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> that one catch my eye. Like, their vision stops. It's like they're wearing a hat pulled all the way down yes. to their nose. To... Yes, yes. But that, that was a nice touch. But this bedroom killer... Having him die so quickly is like, oh, you look like my dad. I hate my dad. You look like my mom. <laughs> a very cliche. Yeah. You know, you've heard that line a, a thousand times. You look like so and so. I hate so and so. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I, he falls down the stairs. The same stairs that Bette Midler 
fell down in the beginning, and she was fine. She was so fine that she punched through the sack she was being held in. Yeah. Like, she got superhuman powers where she punched through this thing and then starts <laughs> wrestling with Judge Reinhold. Uh, but, yeah, so he dies conveniently, and we get one of these things I hate in movies where they do this close-up on somebody who's supposed to be dead, and, like, they're moving. Yes, I always watch. That's okay. That is a a signal for me to look really closely. Absolutely, because I'm looking at eyelid flutter, eyeball rolling underneath. You know, yeah. And they, it, it's not like they just couldn't do this in the '80s. It's still today. Mm-hmm. We were watching a, a movie as a you know me and the boys uh, night before last. I think we watched The Core, and it, well, no, there some guy dies in that at one point, and and Dave's like. Is he dead? I was like, yeah, yeah, he, he's dead. But he's still moving. <laughs> so it starts early. They've seven. Yeah. So he's still at, at that age kind of looking deep. Is that guy really dead? Yeah. He's faking. Yeah. Uh, so we get that. And we, like we talked about uh, not too long ago, the the ransom exchange, they, they finally finally agree on a ransom because now it's Danny DeVito's only way out because now they've pegged him for for kidnapping and murder. So his only way out is to pay the ransom to get his wife back to prove that he didn't do anything. And uh, Bette Midler, you know, told uh, Ken and Sandy, you know, all about all his money, say they know exactly how much to ask for, and they asked for everything. The handoff finally happens, and they get away. Chase ensues. Some other guy tries to stick him up. <laughs> yep, Bill Pullman's character. Yeah, because that's right. He, that's because, right, Bill Pullman comes in. Yeah, there. he has been informed by Danny DeVito. That's right. Through Carol, his mistress. Yeah. So they kind of a following ensues. and Judge Reinhold. Judge Reinhold, yeah, drives his car off a dock. And, and the money starts floating up. And the, you know, oh, there's the sharks. I love that line. <laughs> oh, that water. Somebody save him. <laughs> oh, it's cold. There's riptides. There's sharks. And then like $20 floats to the surface and everybody jumps in the water. So they, you know, they call the Coast Guard. We got to fish him out. And so next thing we see is, you know, a body getting fished out. But it was after they take off this clown face, find out, oh, it's the the bedroom killer. So really what they're banking on in this scene is they walk at the end of the movie on the beach, all all filled with joy, was the coroner doesn't look too deep. Right. We we hope there's no water in his lungs. This (laughs) dude broke his neck. Huh. (laughs) And the time is way off. Like time of death was his rigor know, twelve mortis hours, and, uh, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and and no one's being held accountable. A kidnapping did happen. A ransom was demanded. Guns were pulled. Like this is yeah. There were crimes. Like we have all of wherever this is supposed to take place. L A. Yeah, L A. Santa Monica. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you got all their SWAT out there. They're even firing rounds at one point mm-hmm. to, to keep uh, Bill Pullman back. <laughs> In his gremlin? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, the gremlin car. Why did they ever cancel that? I guess the way it ended was fine for, for this kind of movie. That's sure. just a silly movie. It's not meant to be looked at very deeply. Or, no, not at all. It, this is just a, a good time. It's about ruthless people screwing each other. In fact, I think the, uh, the movie poster is just a giant uh, screw. Yes. I think so, yeah. And I want to just talk about this real quick. Mm-hmm. There's a, a real funny scene with Danny DeVito where he's getting mugged right after a ransom handoff did not occur. 
Yeah. And the guy starts demanding everything of him. And he's like, are you sure? Are you sure? Okay, here you go, bud. Here you go. And then out of nowhere, like 20 cops appear, all their guns drawn at this guy. And what does he say? Do you remember? Boy, they got one hell of a neighborhood watch around <laughs> <Yes>. here. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was great. So the way I look at this is I did not like this movie at all for the first half. Yeah. I didn't like the characters. I thought everyone was obnoxious, yep. no redeemable qualities. And then once Bette Midler comes around and realizes that her husband doesn't even love her. Yeah. Then the movie shifts. And then it be, becomes just a ton of, of, of fun. It it's was a, it was so enjoyable, isn't it? And that's that is exactly I think how it was, I think they they did a wonderful job at pulling this together. You're supposed to not like all of these ruthless people, and then you find there's some good that comes out of all of it. And it's it's a really satisfying comedy. You know, it had some great one liners. It had some great performances. Like you said, it was just a comedy just something fun and it's one that i think that if you haven't watched this movie watch it yeah with a little cynicism you're probably not gonna like it because you're gonna like it yeah 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 don't don't give up on it i knew you would i knew you would enjoy it because it was just fun and it's all over the place nobody is good everybody has some you know there's something good that they bring to the table and and real quickly this happened to be a really good investment for the producers. This film cost at the time $9 million to make and it grossed almost $72 million at the box office. So uh, for an R-rated movie back in the day, that was actually a pretty good haul. And it was adjusted for inflation. What would that be like 140 million now on a $14 million budget? Something like that. I don't know. Do you think any of that success, that monetary success was driven by people wanting to see what the fuss was about or Disney funding an R-rated movie? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're probably more familiar with the history of, of Touchstone than, than I am. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but let her rip. Do you have any idea what... Was this one of the first Touchstone movies? I mean, how far back does does that go? I You know, I don't know. I do know that Down and Out in Beverly Hills was their first hit. Was the first hit. So I think it might have been the first Touchstone. Okay. But don't quote me on that. I, I'm not sure. I'll have to look that up. I'm, I'm curious now. Yeah. Yeah, the, the second half of this movie being enjoyable really redeemed the first half. And the more I think about it, the more I I recognize that being just kind of part of the plot and the device of kind of manipulating the viewer yeah. to, to really not like these people. And then everybody kind of has a redemption arc except for Danny DeVito. Except Danny DeVito. <laughs> well, I, I would say Danny DeVito. Um, you never really find out what happens to Carol or Bill Pullman in this. You know? Oh, we didn't even talk so uh, about what they did when they find out. So they go to a video store. Yes. Right, because they well, for, and that confused me too. I was like, "How do you guys okay. not know?" Here's here's the thing. So they record it. Bill Pullman tells Carol, "Don't watch it. It's too gruesome." She starts to watch it. Hears screaming, turns it off promptly. That's enough for her. She then sends it to Danny for a shakedown. Right, and she doesn't shake him down. She leaves an anonymous note. Danny calls her, thanks her because he just thinks she sent him porn. She doesn't understand it, but she takes. Him recognizing her as being the person who sent it as a threat. So she goes to the police. So she mails it to the police commissioner. The police commissioner sees it and it's actually him with a hooker. So he freaks out. She says, you need to arrest Sam Stone, Danny DeVito's character. He's like, okay, but you're going to ruin my life. So I'll arrest him. So he goes to set him up. Just as he's setting him up, they find the chloroform. They find photos of him and his mistress So now he has motive for killing his wife. So that is salvaged. Well, he gets out on bail. 
Now, Carol, who's staying with her boyfriend in the trailer, is scared to death. Well, she calls him up. That's it. I'm going to the media with this. The police commissioner is telling her, no, please. It's just a guy who's lonely. We do it all the time. (laughs) And that's one of those moments where it's like she's going, what, they kill people all the time? And he's thinking, no, we have sex with a woman who's not our wife sometimes. And so she finally goes into like a a Best Buy at the time, and she puts it in a VCR, and it is the police commissioner, and he's having sex on camera, and you hear one of the women in the background say, that's my husband. Oh, I didn't hear that. You didn't that. hear that? Yeah. But so, I did see somebody's hand reach up trying to cover the screen. Yes. <laughs> on this wall of screens. There's somebody back there being like, no, yes, shield your eyes. Yes, because it goes on all the televisions. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's when she realizes that she's been duped, that Sam didn't kill his wife. And so instead, she calls him and says, what's going on? And that's where that pickup, you know, the the where she sends her boyfriend to hold up Danny DeVito's character for the $2 million at the very end. So he just gets arrested. So we assume that Carol gets hers in the end as well, because she sent her lackey to steal the money from Danny DeVito. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all coming together. All these different subplots kind of have me confused. And, and you know what? And I didn't think about it, but it's really difficult on radio or radio. Listen to me. It's really difficult on a podcast because this is such a, a, a an intricate storyline with a lot of characters and they're all doing their dastardly best to screw somebody else over. Right. So it does make it a little difficult. So I hope everybody yeah. out there is kind of with us. And if you're not, the best way to be with us is to just go check this film out. Absolutely. And going into it, just kind of expect that the the first part of the movie can be a little bit of a drag. Don't give up on it. And I guess pay closer attention to it than I did. <laughs> well, and, and, and you know, and the thing, too, about this movie is what's amazing is it's funny. It's got some funny lines and some funny gags. And it really does. And we have to also remember that this was done in 1986. So a lot of the, the things that were done were I mean, they may have been done in the studio system years, but they weren't done as wickedly. And so this is one of those where a lot of the tropes that we see in this film, they were used here first, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of these concepts have been repeated elsewhere. Now, it is worth noting that this film bears a striking resemblance to an O. Henry story in which a couple of uh, kidnappers kidnap a, a wealthy man's son and the wealthy man doesn't want his son back. Kidnappers don't want the kid either now, so they try to return him. And and so it, it's very similar to that, you know, 100-year-old story, 150-year-old story. But the uh, screenwriters did not officially lift the story from that. Something else that stood out to me, and I don't know if this is um, just something that I'm putting it in or, or making up, but, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of The Office. And, and you've not yeah. watched The Office. no. But in one of the episodes of The Office, we see Steve Carell um, become uh, Prison Mike. And something that Prison Mike says when he's telling everybody about how terrible prison is, is what happens to you in prison. You know, he says, oh, don't drop the soap. Don't drop the soap. But he, he looks at one of his employees and he says, oh, you'll be the bell of the ball. And I wonder if that was a nod to Bette Midler, because Bette Midler says that in that same kind of New Yorky oh, accent. Yeah. Uh, to Judge Reinhold, she's like, oh, you'll be the bell of the ball. Absolutely. I heard that, and I just immediately thought of The Office. I was like, oh, this movie may have had an impact on on Steve Carell, or, or maybe he was referencing Bette Midler there. It could have, could have been. You know, it's yeah. funny how these these 
pop cultural references seep into your psyche and you might not even necessarily know where. Now, you you laugh at mine. I like where uh, there's one line where the kidnappers, un, you know, they, they free Bette Midler's character and they've got Huey and Dewey masks on. And it's just cute because she's like, I've been abducted by Huey and Dewey. And that has just been something that stayed with me for 20 some years. I don't know why. Well, and they're buffoons, too, because the bed shifts and she just lifts up the leg of the bed and yep. her chain falls. out. Oh, and then her escape <laughs> attempt. Is that not great? Oh, my with the, gosh. With the, the gun, lighter gun. The lighter. <laughs> and then the mixer. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. No, she, and she fights viciously. She does. It, it should be noted. It's like. Krav Maga, like yeah. she she goes straight for balls. The mug, the <laughs> mug on the nose. Oh, I, that one hurt. <laughs> that the mug on the face. Now, now if it were just uh, maybe a more simpler movie, it would just bounce off his head and he'd be holding his face. But it hits him on the bridge of his nose yes. and it cuts him. Yeah, and I was like, that's that's pretty realistic. But then he does like this cross-eyed thing and he can't see straight. Well, that's because he <laughs> chloroformed himself. Remember, he had the yes, chloroform, yes, and he was going to knock her out, yes, and he chloroformed himself. That's right. I didn't catch that. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to watch this again. It's where it is. It actually is one of those. When your wife gets back, you guys sit down. She'll enjoy it too. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. So, anyways, I I think that's a wrap. Is there anything else that you wanted to? <laughs> no, I think we've covered this movie a lot and it is it's definitely a movie that you can watch more than once so if you watch it and you enjoy it share it with somebody else they'll enjoy it as well oh actually before we before we quit i want to ask you do you have any memories associated with this movie do you remember where you were the first time you saw it or i okay i remember i had checked this out of the video store on a weekend when my parents weren't home okay yeah do you watch it with your brothers yeah and what what did they think? Everybody it? loved it. It's a okay. great, it's a fun movie. And we were, we were old. I mean, I, I was old enough. I was still living at home, going to school. So I was probably 18, but you know, I just didn't want to make waves. So I checked it out. It was an R rated movie after all. Took it home and watched it. They show the same scene of the police commissioner with the prostitute. What? 10 times. Yes. 12 times. Yes. <laughs> I, it really is. Uh, you see it so much in the movie and it's not, anything that's even extreme no. by any standards like any modern standards at least but it was, it was funny just the dumb face that poor guy's making and <laughs> you know when they pull up on the bridge originally he's like oh i like it when you make a lot of noise of course <laughs> right <laughs> and so she starts screaming like she's being murdered yes. it's not what what you would consider like screams of ecstasy. It's, no. it's screams of being strangled. It's so screams it's... <laughs> of murder. It is. Yes. Oh, baby. Scream like you're getting murdered. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Go watch the movie. Go yeah. watch the movie. Um, I can't wait to watch it again. Maybe I'll do it tonight. I think the rentals for, for two days. Two or so. three days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to check it out again. See, definitely. But, well, thanks for joining us. And, uh. We'll catch you next time. Yep. Later, Hosen. Hindsight, a nostalgia podcast, is a product of Forgotten Man Media and is sponsored in part by 461 Veteran Clothing Company. If you would like to support our show, please consider subscribing and leaving a nice review on the podcast service of your preference. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.